This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the North Face and its new Apex Flex GTX, a waterproof soft shell jacket. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a quick story about something that's not a jacket. It happened a few years ago on a freelance assignment for the local newspaper. I was writing about stuff you could still do outside in that last gasp of summer before it started raining again. It was not the sort of story that I expected to inspire a letter, but at some point in this list of swimming holes and frisbee golf courses, I insinuated that the return of the rain was a sad thing. I know I did that because a few weeks later I got a note from the rain lady, an anonymous letter writer, who whenever someone at the newspaper described rain in a negative way, she would respond with an impassioned, often profane letter scolding them and celebrating the benefits of rain. I remember there were lots of exclamation points in the letter I got. Lots of underlined words. It was like a handwritten YouTube comment section, taking me to task for what I thought was a universal truth. Rain sucks. Her argument was that wet, gray weather actually makes the world beautiful and livable. And while I think we all know that's true, it still sort of came as a shock. No one thinks about rain that way. Which brings us back to this new jacket the Apex Flex GTX from North Face. It combines a stretchy, comfortable fabric with Gore-Tex waterproofing. It's a jacket designed to be so comfortable and well-made that you'll want it to rain, just like the rain lady. Though hopefully you'll be a little more polite about the whole thing. Okay, on to the show. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. Hey everybody, as we get going here, I should say that this episode contains references to casual drug use, a tiny bit of swearing, and some discussion of poop. So if you're very squeamish, just take that into consideration. Otherwise, this episode's a good one, so enjoy. It starts with Joe Stone climbing a small mountain just so we can jump off of it when he gets to the top. Yeah, I'd go speed hike up. It was like a whole game for me. I had my watch on, time it. How fast can I get to the top? It's close to, you know, jogging with a 35-pound pack on your back as I could get. And the funny thing, I'd be so tired every time I get to the top, I'd say... This is, you know, I'm only going to make one flight this evening. I had a long day at work. And I'd make that flight and I'd land every single time. And I'd be like, I don't even care how tired I am. I'm going another round. Like, that was amazing. To be able to hike up something with a little tiny backpack and pull some fabric out of it and literally fly off the mountain. Coolest thing I've ever experienced, hands down. How often were you flying? Uh, Five, six days a week. Holy, really? Yeah, so I would work in town doing maintenance work around apartments and houses and mowing lawns and that kind of thing. This, I mean, I'd get done and, and scurry over to the mountain right away. My gear was always in my truck and would literally just park it straight from work and hike up the mountain. And so I'd get three, four, sometimes even five flights in in, in an evening. Let's just lowball it and say it was 3,500 feet, 4,000 feet a day, five six days a week because I went into it pretty physically fit and then doing that over and over and over again I've never felt so good in my life honestly that was the best I've ever felt 
physically, mentally fell in love with it. It was so fun. It was the thing I wanted to do all the time. It was keeping me healthy. It was keeping me outside. And then on August 13th, Friday, the 13th of August in 2010. So I remember waking up, going to where I worked and talking to my boss. And then I went over to Amy's house afterwards. And I remember walking up the stairs to her apartment. I remember getting to the very top and looking over and seeing her in the kitchen making coffee or something. And that's where my memory stops. We're going to cover a lot of ground really quickly here at the beginning and jump backwards in time a little bit because this truly is a story that starts in Joe Stone's childhood. Before trying to understand the choices he made, the choices he's still making, you should know that in some sense this whole piece is about the difficulty Joe's had just trying to grow up. By the end of this two-part episode, you might argue that he never really did. If you're new to the show, I'm your host, Peter Frickwright. And today's story is about one of the most overlooked aspects of survival, long-term recovery, how our bodies and minds heal after a traumatic event. We're going to be talking about this through the story of Joe Stone, because 82% of spinal cord injuries happen to men, most between the ages of 16 and 30, guys who ride motorcycles, get in fights, and just generally feel invincible. But Joe's problems started slightly before that and actually stem from the kind of endearing fact that when he decided he liked something, Joe would get so excited that everything else in his life completely disappeared. Okay, so you were, you were really into rollerblading. Yeah, rollerblading was my life. I mean, that was kind of the dream for a long time. I wanted to be that pro skater, sponsored, traveling, going to Europe and things like that, and just traveling and rollerblading. That was all I really wanted to do. The, the joke always was that if he got too banged up, I would take his skates away until, you know, these huge bruises would heal and that. This is Kim Stone, Joe's mom. Did you ever actually take his skates away? We did, yeah, several times. And he just, some of this stuff, he just really had to get healed up. They were big. So that's little Joe, reckless and seemingly numb to everything, except the neurological reward of landing a new trick. When he took on a sport, it was his life. Among social psychologists, Joe would be considered a sensation seeker, drawn to high-risk, novel experiences. Sensation seekers are more likely to drive too fast, have unsafe sex, prefer hard rock to classical. They also seem to have a greater appreciation for violent and surrealist art. There's also a strong correlation with drug use. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of, I was 16 and I smoked weed for the first time. And it was awesome. And we had a super fun time and I was super giggly and that was that. And then, you know, it's, you just kind of like, okay, well, did that once. It's not scary anymore. I'll fully admit I've got a somewhat addictive personality. So let's just keep having fun. You often hear stories about marijuana acting as a gateway drug and introducing people to new forms of thrills that lead to harder drugs and things like that. And so, yeah, this is another one of those stories. Because the drugs did get harder. And after a few years, Joe's life did start to kind of take on the narrative arc of one of those drug awareness movies they show in schools. So a few years later, 
he had gotten himself, uh, not a lot, but he had gotten himself a little bit of cocaine from somebody. And he pulls off on the side of the road, and he's messing with it in his car, and a, a na- somebody in that neighborhood walks by the car, and the guy taps on the window, and he goes, I see what you're doing. Don't you move this car. I'm calling the cops. Joe's dad, Ron Stone. Now, knowing Joe, it's hard to imagine Joe would listen to a perfect stranger and just sit there and do what the guy said. But he did. And the cops came. And um, and he got in trouble for it. But not that much trouble. As his friends went to college and Joe went to their parties, he found he had a remarkable ability to sidestep consequences. He kept pushing the limits, not a couple more brushes with the law, and then drunk driving arrest that became a weekend in jail. I said to him, you know what, here's the deal, Joe. I'm not trying to get you out of here. I'm going to make one phone call on your behalf, and it's to the attorney that helped you the last time, and you better hope he's willing to help you again. I didn't know it at the time, but he made that. He could have got me out then, but he made that decision for me to stay in there to kind of get my, hopefully to wake me up. For the most part, it worked. Because after Joe's dad left him in jail for a few days, a couple of things happened at once. First, his lawyer got him off on a technicality. He'd been too drunk for his phone call. Then, as he was dealing with the aftermath of all that, Joe discovered that he didn't actually need the drugs to get the kind of rush he was looking for. He just needed an airplane and a parachute. And then once I got into skydiving, it was like, whoa. Uh, Is an accurate read to say almost like you found a better drug in skydiving? Totally. That's way cooler. Way more mind-blowing. Most of us and by us, I mean people who demonstrate the proper respect for gravity, most of us probably think of skydiving as the hard stuff. But for Joe, this was the gateway. Yeah, so, you know, once you get into the, the free flight world, you know, whether, whether it's paragliding or hang gliding, once you get into one of them, any one of them, I think naturally it just kind of opens the doors for you to see what else is out there that's, that's similar ways of flying. And skydiving for me was a stepping stone to base jumping. And that was really what I was wanting to do. And just to bring you up to speed on base jumping, which is jumping off of a bridge or building or cliff, it's the most critical and dangerous gravity sport. 75% of participants have witnessed a death or serious accident. Someone dies every two weeks on average. So I knew that about him when I met him, and I knew that he was really into the adrenaline rush type of sports that was actually part of a big draw for me was someone that actually wanted to live life and live it fully completely this is amy rosendahl they met just after joe started skydiving so we met in minnesota working at a restaurant together uh and he actually trained me trained me in but i i knew what i was i probably knew what i was doing more than he knew what he was doing (laughs) but uh definitely Fell for him in a sense right away. Just um, can you just what was the connection? I just really loved looking into his eyes. <laughs> to be completely honest, really, uh, yeah, he's got the beautiful blues. <laughs> he does. Tell me you haven't looked into his eyes. I, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about it. Uh, he's got good eyes. He's got great eyes. <laughs> So Joe suddenly had several new sources of the thrills and rewards he was after. Skydiving and Amy. Aimdog, as he called her. He also started fly fishing pretty seriously. 
and it wasn't that long before they decided that the best way to pursue their lives together was a fresh start in a new place, Missoula, Montana. So I looked it up, didn't look into the town at all, just looked up like recreationally what goes on around it. And it had the fly fishing, it had the rivers, it had the flying, it had everything I was looking for. And so I was like, cool, I'll move to Missoula. But the one thing Missoula didn't have was accessible skydiving. In Minnesota, Joe worked at a jump center, packing parachutes so he could fly for free. In Missoula, he had to pay, and it was expensive. It was this constraint that led him to speed flying, which is sort of like base jumping, but your parachute is already deployed, and you wait for the wind to catch it before you jump. Once you have the gear, there's no airplane to pay for. You just hoof it up a mountain every time you want to fly. So for better or worse, Joe's thrills got cheaper. I went and did that and fell in love with it. I mean, you want to talk about being in the moment and your heart pumping. I mean, that first flight that I took where I didn't jump out of an airplane, there was no assistance. It was just me standing on the side of a mountain hooked up to this tarp connected to strings and it's going to supposedly allow me to fly off of the mountain. Coolest thing I've ever experienced, hands down. I remember just giggling like a child. So that had me hooked, and I realized this sport was going to be a lot more than just a transition into base jumping. This is becoming a huge part of my life, and eventually it would lead to me getting into base jumping, but this was always going to be something I was doing. I really worried about that speed flying thing. I think that bothered me more than just the skydiving. You know, I think maybe maybe it was because I knew he could do it more. He could do it as much as he wanted to do it. Without anything holding him back, Joe had to set his own limits. And he didn't really know how to do that. So he pushed himself right up against the edge, testing and scaring himself nearly every day. I, I mean, I liked the fear. At that time... It was more about getting as scared as I could possibly get. It's not overstating it to call this the high point of his life. He was living in the place he wanted to live, flying as much as he wanted to fly, dating the girl he wanted to date. They both had jobs that let them spend their time outside. She even had a trip to Jamaica on the calendar. Then, on Friday, August 13th, 2010, Joe made a mistake. It was probably like a lot of other mistakes people make especially young men, who go too big, too quickly. Up to that point, I think we probably hadn't practiced very good communication as far as like when he gets done doing something dangerous, shoot me a text so that I know he's okay or not or, you know, whatever. Because I got off of work and I tried to call him and he didn't answer and that was like maybe 11 or so at night. Um, We had a cabin up north. We had, Ron and I, his dad and I, had gone up for the weekend. And so we got up there, and for whatever reason, we left both of our cell phones in the truck. It ended about 3, I think it was like 3.20 in the morning, my phone rang. And it was, when I looked at my phone, it was him. It was his phone that was calling me. And so I was like, that jerk was at the bars, and now he's trying to call me when he's all drunky face. The next morning, about seven or so, 
the uh, lady that owned the resort that we were at came up to our place there and I knew something was wrong. As I answered the phone, I was, you know, like, hello. And it was a woman on the other end and she, like, identified herself. I'm so-and-so from St. Pat's Hospital. And I just, like, shot out of bed because I was like, oh, shit. And so Ron walked down and talked to her and um, I was on the deck and I said, you know, what's wrong? And she just looked at me and said, I'm sorry. 911, what are you reporting? Yes, I'm on a now, Jumbo. How you doing, man? Uh, and, uh, we have a parasail that crashed. I'm basically in this right now. Okay, where at? Mount Jumbo. Mount Jumbo? And what happened yes. there? Joe doesn't remember the accident or anything from that day. But there were other people on the mountain, so we know it was his fourth flight, and that he took off at about 8 o'clock at night. Uh, I was looking at the L, and I just watched a parachuter fall to the ground. Okay. He needs a helicopter, I'm positive. Joe thinks he was probably trying to do barrel rolls, flipping himself all the way over his canopy. And the most likely cause of his accident is that he failed to correct for his momentum. The lines got tangled, and part of his canopy collapsed. He went into a spin towards the ground. He probably hit at about 50 miles an hour. No one saw the impact, but in keeping with Joe's ability to sidestep the worst consequences, the closest person to him was a trained EMT named William Babington. Yes, he's convulsing right now in front of me. Okay, hold on for me one second. He heard gurgling sounds in Joe's mouth and decided to remove his helmet to clear the airway. How's that, man? You hear me? It probably saved his life. Forty minutes later, Joe was in the ER. He'd broken eight vertebrae in his spine. He had lacerations to his liver and kidney, a collapsed lung, and four broken ribs. Doctors put him on a ventilator, which fed him pure oxygen, but they still couldn't get his oxygen saturation above 51%. So for a long time, the thought was that he'd wake up with brain damage. If he woke up. I remember thinking in my head I wanted to ask this lady if he was going to live and I didn't want to ask her and it took me just took me a few minutes for that question to actually come out of my mouth because I just really didn't even want to know and uh, she just kind of took a deep breath and she's like he's just really bad he's hurt really bad and I was like fuck that's exactly why I didn't want to ask they had to keep him completely immobile so they put him in a coma for a few days while his body repaired itself then a few days turned into a month By the time his family gathered at the hospital, they knew that if he survived, Joe was going to be what's called a C7 quadriplegic, impairment in all four limbs because of damage to the lowest cervical vertebrae. And maybe this says it all about Joe before the crash, but when his family got this news, their first reaction was, Joe's not the kind of person who's going to be able to handle this. My concern was more about his mental state, believe it or not. My thought the entire time was, 
mentally he is just going to want to check out. He's not going to want to live like this. He was petrified of becoming paralyzed. It's a pretty common thing to think that you'd rather be dead than completely paralyzed, completely dependent on other people. Especially Joe, who tolerated boredom very poorly. So as it became clear that he was going to survive, it was like he dodged the death penalty, but was still facing a life sentence. You know, the, the funny thing was the, the thing I missed the most in that moment, I wanted to be on the creek right, that ran right in front of my house. All I wanted was to be standing in that cold, crisp water and feel that cold water running over my feet. That wasn't going to happen because he couldn't move his legs and had dramatically reduced sensation in his lower body, kind of like a constant hum in his skin. He did have limited use of his arms, but almost no grip strength. He'd also lost 30 pounds of muscle. According to a paper published in 2015 that analyzed head and neck injuries in outdoor sports, of all the non-flying extreme sports, motocross is actually the most likely to lead to catastrophic neck injury. It accounts for more than 25% of all cervical fractures. If you exclude motorized accidents, surfing is actually the most likely to leave you paralyzed, then mountain biking. And the thing a lot of these athletes have in common with Joe is that once they've stabilized, and it's clear they're going to live, things get harder before they get easier. High-level athletes are used to being good at everything physical. Now they have an entirely different body. So we're going to follow Joe step-by-step through the recovery process, which started when the hospital loaded him onto a plane and flew him back to Minneapolis. But he wasn't all that motivated at first. His first stage of recovery was denial. Maybe escapism is a better word. And there's a lot of things to that, but I started watching A River Runs Through It. If you're unfamiliar with the film, A River Runs Through It is the story of a rebellious thrill-seeker and fly fisherman whose fast living catches up with him. It takes place in the exact same mountains Joe had been flying off of. I literally watched that film multiple times a day for weeks. I could probably recite that whole movie. The world is full of bastards. The number increasing rapidly the further one gets from Missoula, Montana. Amen! In his bed at Bethesda Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, Joe was 1,191 miles away from Missoula. He couldn't eat, drink, or speak. Lots of people describe him as essentially an infant during that period, but Joe couldn't so much as breathe for himself. He had a tube in his trachea, doing it for him. Because no air passed his larynx, he couldn't make a sound. He couldn't write anything with his hands. Basically, all he had to communicate with were his beautiful blue eyes. But even Amy was still back in Missoula, packing up their stuff. And strange as it sounds, she wasn't sure whether he'd still want to be with her. So that whole first month when he was in that induced coma, I had these huge fears around him waking up, realizing what was going on, and then just pushing me away because he didn't. I knew that that was his personal hell, and I just kind of imagined him not wanting to bring other people into it so I was just really fearful that whole time that he was going to wake up and not want me around I had been sending him emails 
just letting him know, you know, just anything I could think of what I was doing that day. I was just thinking about him all the time. It was just the worst to be away from him, especially in that time. And, um, I, there was never any response and I just didn't know why there wasn't any response. So finally it was in the middle of one of the nights when I first got back to Minnesota, I was in the ICU in St. Paul and I have Amy's computer and I'd been watching a river runs through it and kind of thought to myself like, Hmm, I wonder if I can maneuver this computer in a way where I could type. So I finally, I like pulled it down where it was kind of resting on the table, but then resting on my, like my stomach. And I started typing an email to Amy and this email, uh, man, I don't know, maybe two or three sentences. And it took hours, like at least two hours for me to type this. You know, it's just maybe one short paragraph, but it just said everything that it needed to say. Just that he heard me. That he heard me and he knew that I was coming. But if he was going to get back to any kind of normal life with Amy, the first step was getting off the ventilator. The hospital he was in specialized in that process. Even they weren't sure he could do it. Like they literally said, we don't, we don't know if you'll ever get off this ventilator, but we're going to work towards it. And that scared me for sure. At first, learning to breathe was a matter of getting the actual tissues in his body to adapt by lowering the percentage of oxygen. 100%, then 95, 90. As soon as he got comfortable, they took something away. After two weeks, he was taking the ventilator out for short periods. Very short. I mean, breathing for me, it was a conscious effort. So I didn't breathe because it's just what my body does. I didn't, my, my body didn't have that natural instinct anymore. So if I got distracted, I stopped breathing. He was dealing with both muscle atrophy from a month in an induced coma and the fact that his spinal cord injury had cut the wiring for much of his diaphragm. Muscles don't work if the nerves don't relay the signal to fire. So suddenly he had fewer muscles to call on for each breath. It's kind of like when you get done with like a really long run and you still got another mile and your legs are like jello and you're just sloppily running. I would just start sloppily breathing. I wasn't focused on it as much. During the short periods when the ventilator was off, he could force some air through his throat and manage a few words. That's what he was doing when Amy showed up. So when Amy came in, uh, I, just, I just remember her getting to the door of, of my, my hospital room, and I covered up that hole. And I mean, it was like, aim dog, like the weakest little aim dog I could throw out there. But I was just so... Jesus Christ, no. With all the fish in the river. I'm not like her. So we got Amy back. He got a voice and breath. The next challenge was fluids. It had now been two months since Joe had taken a drink. He'd been awake for half of it. So like imagine a a solid month of no food going through your mouth, no water, no liquid of any kind, not even like airflow. The sensation of thirst is actually more psychological than it is physical. Joe's body was perfectly well hydrated through an IV, but his brain was telling him different. And all the nurses would give him were damp sponges to suck on. Then they gave me an ice cube. And that was, the ice cube was like, whew. 
I remember just like closing my eyes and letting that ice cube just melt over my tongue. And then the, the water kind of ran around my tongue and underneath it. And I kind of got to swish it around my mouth a little bit. And then I took like my first gulp and felt the, the cool water go down my throat for the first time. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't compare it to anything else I've ever experienced. That, that might be a sensation I'll never top, that first ice cube. But no matter how good it felt, after each ice cube, they would check his lungs to see if there was water inside. And this process involved sticking a vacuum down his throat. But relearning how to swallow was maybe even harder than relearning how to breathe. So in a sense, this is like me tapping back into my rollerblading days. I mean, every time I swallowed wrong, it was me falling where I had to get back up and, and attempt it again. I couldn't give up. I had to make it happen. So then it became this game of, of sitting there like dry swallowing for days and days to, to try to connect all the dots. How, how do I swallow? Like how, what do I do to swallow? After too many failures in a row, his nurses stepped in. And they took away his skates, so to speak. From there, they took the ice cube away. Not as like punishment, but like you're, you're, you're swallowing straight into your lungs. You need to learn. We got to figure out a way to teach you how to swallow properly because that can't be happening. That's really bad. So it would be like this give and take. Like I'd finally get a sip of water and then I'd put all this 100% focus that I can into making that swallow happen and it would be wrong. And eventually I had a sip of water and I swallowed and it, they suctioned out of my lungs and nothing happened. I was like, I mean... As much as I could jump for joy as a quad, newly injured, laying in a bed, yeah, I was jumping for joy, for sure. And and then from that point forward, it was one of those, like, I got this. I know how to do it now. Next up, solid food. Eventually, they came in with applesauce, and that went well. And then after I had a few rounds with the applesauce, they were like, you could, I think we can start feeding you a real meal. Like You, you could eat your first meal. But what surprised me was it was the first time I was chewing I would take like three or four bites and I'd be so tired I would take a long nap from taking three or four bites. By this point, Joe was making progress every day and all things considered, he was doing really well. Good enough that we put some happy music underneath this section. But really, that's just us trying to give you, as a listener, a bit of a break from the constant, bottomless, heartbreaking struggle and grind that Joe was going through relearning the most basic tasks. One of the days was the hard, was really hard for me in the beginning was watching him take cotton balls and try and put them in a mayonnaise jar. Um, I, I mean, it seemed like it took him 10 minutes to be able to pick up one cotton ball and move it into that. It was the hardest thing. And... You'd look at his face, and he was in such concentration trying to get that movement done. You know, it was just, in one sense, I was like, Joe, how could you, you know, break down your body this way? Um, I think short of losing your child, um knowing that your child is so hurt physically and it and you can't fix it the way you've band-aided their whole life and protected them um that was really hard to know that 
for once we couldn't fix it and we couldn't fix him. The thing everyone was coming to realize was that even the most basic version of survival was going to be completely exhausting. Everything was so much harder. It took so much longer. Even going to the bathroom. Everything down there was paralyzed. None of the muscles worked. So Joe had to do it manually. But he couldn't even really do that. Now this is a bit descriptive, but uh, my right hand wasn't, my fingers weren't strong enough for me to stick a finger up my butthole to stimulate things, a digital stimulation to go to the bathroom. Like I physically could not do that. Learning that he'd have to do number twos by hand for the rest of his life was rough. But he says his rock bottom was when they showed him a video about what it was going to take for him to do something as simple as drive somewhere on his own. I don't know why that video was so impactful, but it, I think it was just because it was finally a real thing. It was driving. It was something. It was real life at that point, not hospital stuff. That was the moment that I realized I was never going to fly again. And that was way harder to deal with than not walking or anything else I was up against. I was, I was basically telling myself, I'm never going to be able to dream big again. I'm never going to be able to like have dreams of things I want to accomplish in my life. When he saw Amy later that night, he immediately broke down. Which then, of course, made her break down. And it was the first like real heavy, like just being real about the situation and that life is just sucks so much and the rest of my life is over I'm never going to be able to do anything anymore how am I ever going to hike mountains how am I ever going to fly again how am I ever going to and I was just going through the things I wanted to be doing it wasn't even daily living stuff it was like how am I going to do the things that bring my life purpose I mean I was like essentially saying goodbye to my life like it had died this was their low point in the recovery and they lived in this headspace for a couple of days letting go of the life they knew trying to accept it. They only started to climb out of it a couple nights later, when Amy brought in a movie called Murderball, about quadriplegic rugby. The main characters were guys who were physical, alpha male types, now in wheelchairs, looking for purpose. For Joe, it was like looking in the mirror. What's really hard is the first two years. Quadriplegics, when they come out of the hospital, after they've broken their neck, and they've got very little function, when they get out, they can't do anything for themselves. They've got someone helping them, someone wiping their ass, and they work for the next three to four years trying to get independent. It's a mind fuck in the beginning, and then either you make it or you don't. I mean, I bawled my eyes out through the whole thing because, the, and I watched it a bunch, that became my new one. It switched from A River Runs Through It, which was me really dwelling on the past, to Murderball, which was me now starting to focus on the future. and it turned from tears to studying. Now I'm like watching how these guys push their wheelchairs. Now I'm watching how they transfer, the techniques they're using. I'm watching how they get dressed. What did they do to make it that much easier to get the pants under their butt when their butt's in a wheelchair or it's, it's on the bed? And it wasn't too much longer after that that I said, my goal is to be totally independent within one year. For a new quad, total independence means being able to take care of everyday life stuff on your own. It's getting back to square one of adulthood, essentially. And the staff at the hospital cautioned him. 
Most people take two or three years to become independent. But Joe had a looming deadline. Long before the accident, Amy had planned a trip with her brother to spend a week in Jamaica playing on the beach with her nieces. She, I could tell, like she didn't, she didn't want to give that up. She didn't want to have to say no to that. And I, I wanted her to have that. Like I wanted her to have a moment to get away. So that was the deadline for us. If I don't have it figured out before Amy leaves, you know, that means I'm going to either have to ask a stranger or ask a really good friend of mine to help me poop. And when Amy left, we weren't sure if we were there yet. Their friend PJ came over to stay with Joe with instructions not to do anything for him unless he got himself stuck. Man, that was the craziest week. That was such a cool week. It was a full-time job, but every day Joe got himself dressed and showered. PJ watched a lot of baseball. And on the final night, Joe decided he was going to make dinner. A real dinner. Corn on the cob, chicken, sautéed veggies. I mean, literally, I'm like, you know, tapping back into the days of kind of learning how to cook. And I'm like, I've got the the pan I'm sautéing everything up in. And I'm, you know, no spoon, no nothing. Just like flipping it like a real chef. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is awesome. I'm going out to the grill and I'm like flipping things around. And I'm cooking, I'm like cooking a good meal. Like I'm looking, I'm like, this looks legit. Like this is like, this is gonna be a pretty good meal. And not only did I cook it, but then I, I made a plate of food for PJ. And I wheeled it into the living room and I handed him a plate of food that I cooked for him while he was sitting on the recliner. That felt really good to be able to, like, contribute. That night, PJ went home, and Amy got in really early in the morning. They woke up, Amy went to make coffee, and Joe realizes he now has an opportunity to impress her. I only had minutes to get myself dressed and over into the chair and, and get into that kitchen before she sees any of it, right? And so I'm like, I, I to this day probably haven't got dressed that fast. But at that moment, it was like, let's, let's make this happen. I mean, I threw my body into my chair. Through all this scramble, if you can picture it, it's just like me going as fast as I can and dropping things, trying to grab my pants, losing my grip, fumbling, but making it happen at the same time. And then it's just chaotic. And I get into my chair and and rolled so casually so casually into that kitchen like no big deal like i've been doing this for years i got this down and i roll in she's like oh you're out of bed quick I, wow that's that's awesome and she kept making her coffee and i didn't really say much and i just kind of went up we had kept bagels in the freezer and i went up to the freezer and i pulled the bag of bagels out and put the bagel in the toaster and then grab the cream cheese and and I could just feel it from behind me I could just feel Amy staring at me and I'm like I it it's like I didn't want to turn around yet because I kind of I like just kind of wanted her to like take this in and I turn around and the, the look on her face she was just totally followed by the words of like what has happened over this week like what are you doing when how did you when did you learn how to do all of this and I was looking at Amy and I was thinking Look how much more time she has for herself now. He probably told you the bagel story. <laughs> Did your jaw hit the floor? Or? I think I was just like, oh, man. And I've been doing this for you this whole time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it, yeah, I, I was just happy that he had found that level of independence. And I was just like, all right, great. Now we can even go farther from here. You know, what's next? 
This was seven months after Joe's accident. He was ahead of schedule. And like most 26-year-olds with the ability to make a bagel, he felt like he'd basically conquered domestic life. So he needed a new goal. And because this is Joe, he decided he was going to do things no quad had ever done before. Crazy stuff. Stuff that would challenge even the most capable athletes in the world. He was going to get that good at life in a wheelchair. That's how he reconciled who he used to be with who he is now. He'd still be pushing limits. Just different ones. I'm really thankful that my accident happened through speed flying. Because that was worth the risk. Because I thought about that a lot. Like, what would happen? Is this worth dying for? And I thought it was. Like, I was doing something not only that I felt was worth it, but my, my last steps ever were running off a mountain into flight. Hell yeah, that's awesome. That is pretty cool. You know, like, that's like my last steps were doing, like, in my opinion, one of the coolest things you can do. Every time I launched off of that mountain, I thought, out of everybody in this town right now, I am probably having the most fun. Not one person in this town right now is having more fun than me right now in this moment. And that's that's a that's a cool way to end it. It's a cool way to end my able-bodied career, if you want to look at it like that. But as he started his quadriplegic career, he found that this new body was governed by new rules he'd never heard of. And despite the fact that he'd gone through his own personal hell, came out the other side, that doesn't mean he'd necessarily learned his lesson. It was not long at all before Joe was back on that precipice, where the only thing keeping him safe was his own judgment and restraint. It's a place he's been before, and you might say Joe's always had trouble correcting for his momentum. Three, two, one. Legitly, the hardest part was telling my parents. Because I did feel bad. Because I know they do worry. But at the same time, I need to, I need to live my life, you know, and I need to live it in the way that I feel is right. And to me, this is the right way to to live. That's in part two. This piece was produced by me, Peter Frickwright. Music and production help by Robbie Carver. The North Face made this show possible. And they also make the brand new Apex Flex GTX, a jacket so good it defies description in a very literal way. Robbie and I sat down to talk about it. This is this is a this is really a, a query for you. Okay. So um, I had a lot of trouble recording the ad this week. Brought to you by the North Face and its new Apex Flex GTX, a Gore-Tex softshell jacket, a Gore-Tex softshell jacket. Before we get to that, I want you. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a quick story. It just it just didn't go very well, and you know how you're always saying like Pete, you're not very good at this. I should be the host. Um, that's that's yeah, that's pretty much how I introduce you to every new person. So um, I was thinking that um, if you can say Gore-Tex softshell jacket five times fast better than i can then you can have the hosting job I'll do it okay gore-tex softshell jacket 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 <laughs> that's <laughs> disappointingly good <laughs> i think it was four out of five or yeah. maybe 3.5 out of five yeah. maybe, maybe maybe i just got better listening to you let me see
Gore-Tex softshell jacket. 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 Oh, you got like some a big confidence boost there between four and five. You like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you you sprinted for the line in that last one. <laughs> well, I, I guess you can keep your your narrative role for one more episode. I hear. I mean, you're coming for me. I hear from from PRX and Outside Magazine. This is the Outside Podcast. You really science. stepped over my oh the science. Is oh, fine. you were you. That was a pause for gravitas. Yeah, that was that was that was building anticipation and t- it's tension, right? If you you should read up on this stuff. It's important. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some really great, really tense stories coming up for the next few weeks, and you will actually be hearing some new voices. Stories about extreme weather forecasting. First uh, headline that came out was uh, that humans discover how to control the weather. Another one about tornadoes. And that's when it really dawned on me what was happening. He actually wasn't changing lanes. Inflow was sucking him in to the tornado. And an entire series by Florence Williams about some of the most amazing women in the outside world, including Arlene Bloom, whose 1978 expedition was the first time a group of American women had led an attempt at the summit of Annapurna, Nepal. It was a statement about the capabilities of female climbers, so they were under the lens when things went wrong. We have bad news. Um, the ship is found here in Allison's body. But no matter what you're listening to, this month, a lot of podcasts, including us, are hoping you'll tell a friend about what you heard. If you use social media, use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. You know, like try a podcast. It doesn't even have to be one of our episodes. If you like this show, you might also be into the Runner's World show by Runner's World magazine. Each week, they talk about the biggest and oddest running news, and they give advice on training, gear, and nutrition. Find them on iTunes, Stitcher, or runnersworld.com audio. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance and spinal cord injuries. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week when things get really crazy for Joe.